Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. Today we're joined by a Tony-winning actress for her role in The Phantom of the Opera. Judy Kay played the role of a diva in that show, Carlotta, and won a Tony for it. Now she's playing the role of a diva of different sorts in a brand-new Broadway show called Souvenir. I'm kind of uh, giggling a little bit because Judy is wincing. <laughs> Judy, welcome to Downstage Center. It's great to be here. Thank you. Souvenir is the story of a woman that most people nowadays are not at all familiar with, Florence Foster Jenkins. Well, if you're a music student, I think you're still familiar with her. I said most people. Most people. That is true. That is true. In her day, uh, she cut across... Uh, all of the levels of uh, New York society uh, and became a cult figure. But in, but now, uh, if you're a music student, you will probably at some point have heard her recordings, which, by the way, are still extant. They are, they're still in print. You can actually go online and hear clips of them. Yes, you just you have can. to Google her, and you. Or you can listen to this program. Probably in a few minutes, we'll actually play one. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. No, yes, you will. Yes, you will. Well, she was a very wealthy lady who. Uh, had a certain gift of music. Well, her gift of music was that she loved music. Um, the, the music was a gift to her, but I'm not so sure as an artist she was a gift to it. But uh, she also spread her money around. I mean, she was a, a great patron of the arts and especially the operatic arts and uh, took young singers and others under her wings or rather expansive wings and uh, and supported them and um, yeah she was a, she well, was quite there, a there, quite a person there was a line in souvenir that you as the character of Florence Foster Jenkins delivered quite early in the show she says what matters most is the music you hear in your head mm-hmm. and she heard the music in her head but she was tone deaf she had no gift of pitch no gift of rhythm so the music that people heard was quite different than what she was hearing in her own mind. Yes, and I am told by some of my tone-deaf friends that that is precisely what happens. When they're in the shower singing I Could Have Danced All Night, um, they're hearing Julie Andrews. They're hearing it perfectly sung, even though what's coming out of their mouths is far from it. So, Now, in Souvenir, Stephen Temperley, the author, has really imagined a great deal just from the outline of her life because we have the recordings and perhaps a few snippets in the press from those days. Yes. Uh, But this is not a docudrama of the life. No, not at all. This is, uh, the subtitle is a fantasia on the life of Florence Foster Jenkins. So uh, it's a fantasia on her life. It's a fantasia on Cosme McMoon's life, her accompanist, one of her accompanists. Evidently, there were three Cosme McMoon's. We don't know. Did they all use the same name? <laughs> Evidently. She, really? Evidently. So. No, early on. I mean, I've, I've looked at some of those newspaper clippings, and there are other people who earlier on were her accompanists. Uh, but uh, at some point, she got together with Cosme, or a person that she decided to call Cosme, or he decided to call himself Cosme. None of, none of this we truly know. Um, there are those who think they know the, the details and the truth, but... It's even the the most uh, serious of the uh, clippings. All they they sound like after dinner talk. They sound like uh, just sort of chat. So we don't know. We really don't. Unless you know something. But 
what's fascinating is that right now you have just opened on Broadway with this show, which you had previously done off-Broadway last year at the York Theatre Company. Mm -hmm. But even as we speak, in England, in the West End, the British actress Maureen Lipman is playing Florence Foster Jenkins in a show called Glorious, a completely different play about this same woman. Well, supposedly they called to uh, pick Vivian Madelon's brain while they were writing it to see what our play was like, and uh, he respectfully declined to uh, <laughs> tell them what it was about or, you know, any of that. But the bottom line is, for someone we don't know a great deal about, why do you think we're suddenly, and indeed there is another British yes. play about uh, Jenkins as well, why are we being bombarded with Florence Foster Jenkins right now? Gosh, I wish I had an answer to that. I I can't rightly say. I know that um, what they call the outside artist, or what I've been told they call the outside artist, those people who love have a love for art, either uh, a, a graphic art, a, you know, a painting, fine art, or the dancing arts, or the singing arts, or the you know musicians. Um, they're always they're they're always around us. There's some people who just take badness to the next level. They can't sort of keep it at home. You know, they they there is a point of delusion where they feel they must share. And uh, I guess the most recent is a young man named William Hung, who was on uh, American Idol, and uh, something propelled him to go down and audition for this thing. Did he know he was bad? Did, I, I think he just loves what he's doing. He look, That's what it looks like to me when I see him. So there's something that's um, fascinating to people <laughs> about someone who will get up in front of others when they really have no particular gift to do so and expose themselves one way or the other. What's interesting about Souvenir is at first glance on the surface it would appear to be a show, kind of a one-joke show, about a woman who can't sing very well but believes she can, kind of makes a fool of herself but doesn't realize it. That's on the surface. But when you sit there and you watch the show, you realize there's a lot more to it. It's the relationship of her with Cosme, her accompanist, who mm -hmm. at first is himself a naysayer, a doubter, but over the course of 12 years becomes won over by this woman. And her basically indomitable spirit, she just will not give up. She will not give up. Uh, I think it, in the main it's a love story. Mm -hmm between these two people and but not uh, not in a sexual sense not at all it's uh it's but it nevertheless is is true love um and it's about how we all delude ourselves i think at certain points the audience while it's laughing suddenly stops and says wait a minute am i Am I the same as, as Florence? Am I deluding myself on some level about I've, I've had playwrights come to see this thing and they'll come back and they say I was up all night. This this play kept me up all night. I, I'm wondering if I, I really have any talent. Do I? Uh, am I just fooling myself? I think I think it's, it strikes a very deep chord in people. Well, it has to be a challenge for you as an actor to make this more than a comic book cardboard cutout of a character. It would be so easy just to make it a farce and do her on a one-dimensional level, but to bring out a real soul and a real, real humanity in this woman who really did live and do, did exist. Well, uh, I was encouraged to do so. I mean, that was my my first uh, response to the material. I think it's very sincere. It is not at all a send-up. Not There's not a, a bit of that in, in the script. And then our director, Vivian Madelon, and 
uh, worked with me for a very long time and, and made sure that if there was any of that creeping in, he would, you know, stomp on it quickly because uh, I certainly don't want to laugh at her. Uh, well, I, it's well, up to the audience to do the laughing yeah. and then the crying, actually. Yeah, well. yeah. Your, your character can't go out of character and laugh at herself because she doesn't no. see herself as laughable. No. But also, you in real life, Judy Kay, have a beautiful singing voice. You've sung opera. You've sung Broadway, of course. It must be difficult to sing so terribly wrong, so terribly off-key, off-pitch, off-rhythm even. Well, uh... I've said before that all of us uh, who do this sort of thing for a living at one time or another at a party after a couple of belts will (laughs) attempt to be really bad. And we have fun doing that, musicians, dancers, you know, all of us. And um, what the the trick of it is is to do it eight times a week. But that's always the trick of it, to, to sustain a character. Um, through a play, a musical, eight times a week for as long as they'll let you. But in this case, you don't have to hit the same notes every night. But I, are, I are do. You, have you I really do. locked this perform the, these this singing because no one's going to know if the point is do anything but what's right. Well, I haven't heard a recording of myself through several performances, so I don't know if I'm singing exactly the same thing every night, but I think I'm in the pretty much in the neighborhood. I've made certain decisions about when she would go would go sharp or flat, what would be the inclination there and um, and and I think I, I've come pretty close on a nightly basis. And now, as you've done the show, we mentioned that you'd done it first at the York. You mm-hmm. then did it up at the Berkshire Theater Festival this last summer. It certainly wasn't written as a vehicle for Judy Kay, but you've obviously been with it now for a period of time. Were you able to influence the character herself as it went along? Did you have input with Stephen Temperley and, indeed, even the the choices of some of the songs that ended up in the show? No. It, this no. was very much... A play this is that a play you went into. That was, that was written. I auditioned for it. Uh, I picked up the script. I read it. I memorized it. And I am doing it as truly as Stephen dreamed it. <laughs> doing it as, as written. <laughs> Absolutely. Hmm. Now, when you auditioned, did you sing one of Florence Foster Jenkins' That's songs? The audition <laughs> process was interesting. Um, it must have been. <laughs> well, they knew I could sing. They wanted to make sure I could... Sing badly. Well, sing badly and stick to my guns, you uh-huh. know, that once we we were on a course that I would stay there, that I would be able to do that and not go mad. Um, uh, Jack Lee, who was at that time playing Cosme McMoon, Jack Lee, the wonderful Broadway conductor and, and now a, a professor at NYU in music theater, um, he had me. He he said, "I will play the Ave." In this case, it was the, Ave Maria, the Schubert Ave Maria, and he had me. He played it in one key and had me pick any key I wanted to, other than his, and sing it. And we we did that, and I think that uh, that convinced them that I could, in fact. Uh, do this on a, you know, and, eight and, a week. And the temptation isn't, uh, as he's playing on key, for you to change into his key. It must no, have been difficult no, to stay off anymore, key. not anymore. Not anymore. But at, at first, first when well, you auditioned. Well, in, re- in the rehearsal process, I worked on it. But, you know, like any with anything, when an actor takes on a role and works to inhabit that role, all of the qualities of that person... Uh, become yours mm-hmm. and you become part of that character so if I'm being Florence 
that's what's coming out of my mouth. Had you listened prior to the audition, had you listened to the real Florence Foster Jenkins to get an idea of how she actually sang? Well, I first heard Florence back in high school. So I've known about her for many, many years. Oh, t- tell us about your first experience hearing this. Well, it was just like all the it? other. Well, was you know, at I don't even remember. I was at, probably at a party, and somebody had this thing, and uh, and that's probably how everybody else was. You know, all the other music students, even today, were are exposed to Florence um, as a kind of a warning. Is it sort of a scared straight kind of approach no. in music schools? <laughs> I'm I'm ashamed to say you sit, you listen, and you laugh. And you probably did in high school. Absolutely. And now, of course, as I've gotten to know her, I'm, uh, I am ashamed. I'm, I'm sorry, Florence, that I ever laughed at you. Cause why? I, why are you Why? Because I think she was sincere. I, I believe she was sincere in what she was doing, and she wasn't intending to be laughed at. She wasn't doing it for laughs. Well, from sitting in the audience at the Lyceum watching the play, I know she was sincere. The play as written made her a very sincere individual. She she stuck to her guns. She believed in what she was doing. She just didn't realize what she was doing was not on pitch or on tempo or on on anything. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, Uh instead of talking about Florence Foster Jenkins, why don't we play one of her recordings to give our listening audience an idea of what the real woman sounded like? Let's. Since your your cast album is not available yet. (laughs) Not yet. Oh, my God. Which, Which song do you think best represents her and her style? Oh, um... I, th- I think the laughing song. How about the laughing song? A little bit of the real Florence Forster Jenkins, mm-hmm. the laughing song. For those of you who are still listening <laughs> to that. <laughs> in, in the show, uh, Cosme McMoon says, each note has its own value, Mrs. Jenkins. He hesitates before he says the word value, Mrs. Jenkins. He goes on to say, when we see B-flat on the page, for example, we must be certain that's the note we sing. He's coaching her on how to sing. She's asked him for this advice. He says it's an absolute, not something about which we can be, again, he hesitates, evasive. Then she says, "What is? The, do you want to give the line or shall I just read it? I think it's possible to I be... I think it's possible to be too analytical, don't you? Nothing is more detrimental to good singing than this modern mania for accuracy. That was never true in the past. Music came from the heart. You want the rest? <laughs> that's, that's enough. But I think that gives the the essence of what she thought about music. To her, the music was beautiful, and her performance of it was beautiful. Yes. And she meant it. She was completely convinced. And, and completely deluded. At the same well, time, she didn't know it, but no, she I didn't. think she was. Yeah, she was. Yeah, yeah. Do you think, at any point in her lifetime, she realized, other than at the end, just before her death? And I won't. We give, don't give even. Away the, yeah, the we revelation. don't even know if, if that's true. Uh, that was just kind of. Gosh, I, I really couldn't. I really couldn't say whether she ever figured it out. Um, I hope not. I hope she went to her grave not knowing that she was a laughing stock. But I read I read something somewhere, I forget where, that said in real life she was not particularly well liked by other people, by her peers. Do, have you, you know, have you heard that? I just Who only were recently other yeah. rich society, society people. Society. Society well, people. Sure. you know, I other th- bad singers. It's no, interesting. No, no. <laughs> I think they were they clearly were setting her up. Don't you think it was her friends that induced her to to give these music howls at the Ritz. Well, she would give an annual concert for her friends at but the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. Her friends were the ones who, who encouraged her to do so, or maybe the people she thought were her friends. I don't know. So I think she was sort of set up, but uh, but somehow started to believe that uh, 
she was wonderful. The play doesn't necessarily deal with any of that. And where, where did you hear that she was not likable? I read it somewhere. Yeah? Because uh, I, I would like to see where, what that source material is. I'm, a, I'm curious. It was, cu- it was a couple of weeks ago before I even saw the show. Really? Yeah. I need to and read I, that. And I forget where. <laughs> you know, you want to know everything you can about what people sure. think about your character sure. as well. as I mean, there's nothing. No one ever wrote a book. That's what's amazing to me is she has been such continually a cult figure in the music world all these years. And nobody ever really researched it. I would have thought that right upon her death, someone would have leaped right in and, you know, talked to everybody and written some kind of a book. But Or that there would be a detailed obituary of her, which would have recounted And even that, the, the, the obit is still is not very revealing at all, hmm. except that after her death, everybody wanted her money. Do, do you know where the money came from, what her background her father. was? Her father. What, what kind of business I think was he was in? a banker. Uh-huh. And uh, when she died, she left something like $170,000, which today won't even buy you a house. But, yeah, uh, move the decimal point a little yeah, bit. Really. But in, in the mid-40s, that was, that was a pretty good chunk sum. of change. I think she probably went through a great deal of money well, her, and enjoyed it. Her singing career was basically the 1930s through about 1944 when she passed away. Yes, that's what the play deals with. I think she actually started giving recitals. I mean, I've I've got some little programs, some copies of programs that date into the teens, so uh, um, it was it was lengthier than that. And the other thing, of course, to be fair, those recordings were made when she was an old lady. Mm-hmm. Well, she was 76 when she passed away. Yes, so. and she made those recordings rather late. So we don't even really know. I mean, I saw... You're saying you think we caught her past her prime. It's, it's possible. <laughs> I think... I, I mean, I read one review... And she was on a bill with, like, two or three other singers. And unless they were just sort of blowing smoke, they gave her a lovely a lovely uh, review, actually. Mm-hmm. So she might not have been all that terrible as a, as a young woman. But she, she held on to the dream for a very long time, and, and her father wouldn't let her sing. Her husband wouldn't let her sing. So when they both were gone, she, the first thing she did with her money was to come to New York, start studying, and performing. It was all she wanted. Well, from the story of Florence Foster Jenkins, which is certainly a a remarkable uh, theatrical anecdote, it worth it's worth going back early in your career because the story of you making your big break on Broadway is something that people continue to bring up now, almost three decades after it first. Is it really happened. that long ago? Yeah, I hate to break it to oh, you, yeah, yeah. but but on the twentieth century. You uh, came. You were an understudy for the first time in your career. We shouldn't suggest that 20th century was was your first outing on the stage. You'd been working steadily since uh, the late 60s, um, but you you agreed to understudy uh, Madeline Kahn in on the 20th century. And can you tell us the story of of what happened? Well, I. Yes, agreed to understudy Madeline. Uh, I was just, the only reason it was so hard for me to agree to it was that I had watched understudies for a long time, and it seemed like a very difficult, painful job where you're sitting there waiting for someone, usually to have some misfortune, get sick, whatever, for you to have an opportunity to do what you do. And I just thought, oh, I don't think I can do that. But... Hal Prince came to me, not once, not twice, but three times, and said, 
please do this. And uh, they made it possible for me to move from California to New York and play the maid uh, to um, Madeline's uh, Lily Garland. On a good night, I could get about eight laughs with that maid. And I really was having a fun time. Once I had said, okay, I'll do this, I turned into sort of a tourist. I had my camera, I had my my little uh, tape machine, and I was just enjoying the heck out of it. But let's see, how many weeks into the run was it? We opened on Stuff I've read says February it's about 19th, six weeks. about six weeks into the run, uh, right after they had done the commercial, actually. Um, Madeline missed, and... Uh, I missed a performance. Missed a performance, and I didn't know that I was going on because, actually, I was. I spent the afternoon watching uh, Gene Harlow uh, in a movie, and then I, uh, I went to pick up a gift that I had gotten for opening night for Madeline, actually, which looked like Veronique. It was a uh, etching of a French, you know, bare-breasted woman going, f- you know, forward. And it reminded me of the number, so I was having that frame for her. And picked that up and went on to the gym and didn't call into my service because the line was too long. At the you know, no the cell phones. In the days before cell phones the days before cell phones. And before answering machines, probably. Right. I stopped, and I had this little lovely little piece of fish at a little Belgian restaurant on 44th Street. And you still remember the watch restaurant? <laughs> at, well, you know, I remember. I don't think it's there anymore, but it was really wonderful. And I my watch was slow and... I, wa- I actually had even had a glass of white wine, don't tell how. And I um, walked to the stage door w- at what I thought was half hour, and the entire cast, except for Madeline, was draped on the the banister backstage at the St. James, and they all screamed at once, you're going on. <laughs> and I believe I said, and this is XM, right? I, I right. said, no shit. <laughs> and they trundled me up to Madeline's dressing room and started putting clothes on me and wigs on me. I didn't even have a pair of, of eyelashes, you know, uh, false eyelashes, because the maid didn't wear false eyelashes. I'd had, I'd had the smarts to go out and buy a comfortable pair of shoes in case I ever had to go on. And, of course, I'd worked very hard on the part, thinking, as you have to do when you're an understudy, you make this deal with yourself. You say, I will be as absolutely prepared as possible. I will keep current with the script as it's, as it's growing and with the blocking and the choreography. But I will be very – I will understand most sincerely that I am never, ever going on in this part. So you, you have to do that. Because otherwise your heart will break. You'll just go crazy. So I had no expectations. It just was the most fun. And uh, Kevin Klein was just so stupendous. He was so helpful. And, and John Cullum, the same. And, of course, sweet, sweet Imogene. They they buoyed me Imogene through the Coca. whole thing. Imogene Coca. And I had a great time. And as it turned out, everybody knew I was going on. So they were all standing in the back everybody of the theater. Everybody except you knew that. <laughs> everybody except me. I mean, and Hal couldn't be there because that was the night that the movie of, of Night Music opened. So they had he had left instructions that I should be brought to the party at the Ginger Man after that. So there I was in a pair of jeans and sort of a, a flannel um, lumberjack shirt with a, <laughs> in a, a really attractive parka that I'd bought at an Army-Navy store. And that's how I went to, to the, party. the party and met Elizabeth Taylor. And, oh, yeah. Lord. But as the story goes, Madeline ultimately left the show fairly quickly thereafter, and you yeah. became the was, toast uh, of the town. 
because yeah, anybody who wanted to see this new hit musical, essentially, they were seeing you. They weren't seeing Madeline. Yeah, well, she unfortunately had missed nine shows during that her tenure there. So I had gone on quite a lot by that time, and uh, then I, I was able to get some uh, some rehearsal time with Hal, and we got to you know work on it. Well, that first night. You were late for half hour, half hour meaning half hour before curtain. Yep. So let's say 7.30 roughly. What time do you think you got to the theater? I think it was 7.35. So you had a little bit less than half an hour to prepare to suddenly get in the costume and go on stage. You didn't have time to think about it, No, right? I, had, I couldn't be nervous. Okay. It what was a, really a gift to be able to do it that way. What about the next day that you performed it? Did you get performance number two? Were you nervous for that one? When you had time Maybe to a little bit, but I, 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 I just really had a good time. I don't recall... Having any any trouble with it ever? It's 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 really remarkable. I mean, there there are the, those times when you're in the eye, in the eye of the storm, you know, and you're you're just doing what you're supposed to be doing, and it all falls into place. It's it's remarkable. And then there are those times when you fall on your face, continually. But there are those charmed moments. I know they happen in 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 the theater. And I'm not the only one to ex- have experienced them. I so once to you others. took once you took over the role, then how long did you stay and do it? Well, we were only on uh, for a year on Broadway, unfortunately. Uh, but then I went out on the road, opposite uh, Rock Hudson, and did it. And then s- some years later, did another tour of it, but this time with Frank Gorshin. Uh, that was a bus and truck to hell, we called it. 56 cities. No, excuse me. 63 cities in 18 weeks. Wow. <laughs> That's moving. Yeah. But the good news was that I met my husband on that tour. And we should also mention, though, that you did win the Theater World Award for on the 20th century for your performance. Yeah, I cherish that. I really do. And with that great success, I, I have to be slightly evil and bring up, then in 1981, oh, you had right. not one but two Broadway shows coming off of that and they were? They were the Mooney Shapiro Songbook and Oh Brother. And thank you for bringing that up. No, it's, it's <laughs> really fine. I, two shows that I actually well, we had loved. Gary Beach in loved, here. Gary Beach loved. talked about Mooney Shapiro we, a while ago. Oh, my God. The five of us had such a good time. Five people playing 90 roles. I had the fewest number of costume changes. I had 35 costume changes in the evening. And... Uh, I don't know. I I thought it was pretty swell. I thought it was a wonderful show. It was a book show uh, set up uh, as a... And then I wrote a review of a fictional songwriter and his life and times that basically illuminated five uh, decades of um, American and world history. How do I explain that? But it... And the songs were pastiches or pistaches, if you're... You like Cole Porter um, um, of of real songs that had been written throughout the years and evocations of those of those songs, and uh, it was quite brilliant. And Gary was blazingly wonderful in it. Well, from the Mooney Shapiro songbook and Oh Brother, you moved on to a little show called The Phantom of the Opera. You bounced back, thanks to <laughs> yeah. Hal Prince. And yes, you originated you. the role Hal of... has been my, my, I won't say my fairy godmother, but he has been my godfather, that's for sure. You originated the role of Carlotta. You won the Tony for that. Thank you. How, yeah. did, how did that come about? I auditioned for Hal. Just uh, he he knew audition? me, of course, uh, by now, but he uh, had me come in. And I, he, I think I was really auditioning for Andrew. He wanted to know if I could hit the E natural. I think that was all it was. And I did, 
and I did for a year. And but that so. was one of those shows that even before it opened, everyone knew it was sort of a phenomenon. The, sure. the heat surrounding that show at that time was was enormous. The, the level of you know what producers became you know in its day. Um, how much were you a part of that? Was that all focused on Sarah Brightman and and Michael Crawford, and you just get to spectate at the circus? Oh yes, I was. Yes, spectate at the circus is a very good way to put it. I sort of felt. While I had a wonderful time uh, doing it, that I was sort of on the assembly line there to sort of put a little comedy in there to balance off the romanticism of the piece, and um, but we we had a we had a blast, you know, wearing all those fabulous costumes and 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 being together. I mean, it was a great company. And we're now weeks away from that show becoming the longest-running show on Broadway. How about that? In the ensuing years, have you ever gone back to see it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Not recently, but um, um, a couple of times um, in the first year after I left, I did go back to see Friends taking over in various parts, and that was that was fun. Um, and then I did do it a couple of times in L.A., I subbed into uh, the company out there. And that, Certainly that there were companies everywhere. Everywhere, yes. How about the film version? Have you seen that? I have not. Not that I've... I haven't seen any films. I mean, I'm woefully behind in my movie going, so it's it's well, nothing you're, personal. You're probably too busy working because you're one of those those rare breed of a, a working actor, somebody who's always seems to be employed somewhere. I'm, I've been really, really lucky. I've never had to do anything else but this for a living. Not that there haven't been little dips here and there, and never I had, had to, to watch my pennies, but I, I've never... <sighs> I never waited a table. I was just going to ask. And it's you never a good thing for those who I would have waited uh-huh. on that I didn't. Hmm. That's a charmed career for sure. It is a charmed career, completely. Well, after Phantom, Ragtime. Emma oh. Goldman was your role in that. I love Ragtime so much. I just think that it it got terribly short shrift in New York. Uh, I think it's um, it's one of the great pieces of American musical theater and will live on as that forever. I really think it will be done. It's already being done by so many so many little theater companies that are reinventing it for themselves. One of the concerns that for Ragtime was that always that it was produced at such an enormous level. It's one of those shows, I remember even when it opened, people saying, we're not going to see a Broadway show of this right. size and scale again. Do you think that has been a deterrent to it getting seen even more? Uh, and did you get a chance to see uh, the sort of cut-down version of it that was done in London and then over at Paper Mill? Uh, no, I wish I had. I, I, oh, cut-down so meaning it went from a cast of 40 to a cast of, I think, 28. But Entirely possible. I mean, Garth filled the stage. Garth Dubinsky filled the stage. He wanted the big, big Broadway musical. He wanted to, this was his coming out party, and he wanted it to be grand. And I I applaud him for that. It was magnificent. Um, and no, you probably will never see it again, and, and more's the pity. But it's financially impossible to do that anymore. I mean, look look what the ticket prices are. It wasn't when really you have financially possible people. five years no, ago. No, it wasn't. It was it wasn't. Well, um, the thing about that was that, that if we had just been paying our own bills, we would have been fine. But the way that company was set up, Ragtime was paying the bills for all of these companies of 
of uh, um, showboat that were out yes, of well, the road. Well, I think the financial dealings of, of live end complicated well, like, the life of the they, show enormously. They, yeah, they tried to, he tried to do it as a corporation, you know, and you can't really do that because there were uh, some of the companies were failing. He was paying enormous salaries to the actors out on the road doing the various big, you know, leads in, in the showboats. I mean, enormous salaries. We weren't being paid that way. We weren't being cheated, but we weren't being paid that way. So when they would dip, it would come out of our till to pay their bills. If we'd been only been paying our own bills, I think we would have had a run, a, more of a run. We still were there for two years. I mean, I can't grouse. Then onto a disco queen in Mamma Mia. Yeah, about that. <laughs> the original Rosie. In the, in the New York version. That's right. That's right. Uh, a show I wasn't sure I wanted to do. And uh, boy, am I glad I let my agent talk me into it because I, I just had a blast for two your, years. Your agent had to twist your arm a bit? He did. He did. Um, I just, I saw the character as a sight gag, you know, the fat uh-huh. girl. And I thought, I don't want to do that. People already think I'm, you know, a large person and I'm not. But um, well, why do people think that? I don't know. If you could answer me that question, uh, but I just I I really didn't think I I could find my own place into it. And then and then when I was hired, I was told I could find my own way into that character, and it wasn't going to be about uh, you know a sight gag. So I wound up having just the best time with my my girlfriends there, and it was um, what we call the. We finally started calling the menopausal cash cow. <laughs> well, what what was the way you found to portray the character? Well, the director just didn't uh, force me to do anything that I wasn't comfortable doing. So, so, so what did you do? What did I do? I, uh, I made my own decisions about who this woman was and, and uh, um, what her point of view on life was and uh, where the laughs were and, what, what, what and was how I would of, play. What was her point of view on life? Um. That she's a, a pretty serious person, but when it comes to being with her girlfriends, uh, it's hats and horns. Girls but just want to have fun. Girls want to have fun. <laughs> I think that was pretty much what I decided. Uh-huh. One of the sad ironies of this fabulous career that you've had is that we don't have as many Judy K original cast albums as we would like to have from all of these shows. You made a comment before we, we got on the air that, in fact, very often you don't even get to finish numbers a lot of the time. It's true. You, I didn't finish Take that? a Chance. Take a Chance, I didn't finish. Uh, Prima Donna, well, I, that was a, the sextet, so I was part of that, the big note at the end. But uh, uh, my first number in that show, uh, I get to my big note, and the scenery fell on my head. So, um, no, it... Uh, it's a little, I'm a little wistful about it. And, of course, Andrew... Decided he'd already done his cast album because the three leads were the same, so the rest of us could just, you know, go. And the same, with, same with Mamma Mia. And Mamma Mia version. came from London, and they had their album. They didn't care to do what I think would have been a superior album because we had some great, great voices there. But they didn't want to spend the money, and there's a lot of money. It costs a lot of money, and they were going to have to pay us royalties. In London, they don't have to pay them royalties. So, so you filled the gap by recording some albums of your own. 
I did. where we do I get did. to hear you. And I think it's only fair that since, of course, as we spoke earlier, we don't have the cast album of Souvenir yet. Uh, <laughs> in, normally on these programs, we'd never dare play a recording by an artist other than the person doing it in the show. But we made an exception here. But I think we should take a moment and, and hear one song off of one of your albums for, so our listeners can can hear Judy Kay. Sure. What would you like us to play? How about uh, Where is the Warmth from The Baker's Wife? The real-life Judy Kay, not the onstage actress Judy Kay, but your own singing voice. And in um, Souvenir, you actually do get to sing one song at one point in the show. I won't say where for audience who haven't seen it, but it brings the house down, literally, your own voice. Thank you. Yeah, um, beautiful. Judy, I've heard that you're a commuter from New Jersey, that you come on a $2 shuttle bus or something. Most a, bro- of the time. a Broadway star coming in, not on a, even a big bus, a little minivan type of a bus? Oh, yeah. They're the best deal going. Uh, they, really? They pick me up right in front of my building and drop me off at 42nd and 8th Avenue. That's just a short walk to the Lyceum? Absolutely. How about going home? Do you have a car service? I do. One of those. I do. I have a wonderful car. Well, you, you, you had a car I, service. So I well. haven't had one of those since on the 20th century. I probably shouldn't say that, but uh, this is the first time. The first time I've been over the title and had a car to take me home since those days. Not only did you, the night I saw the show and I came back to see you in the dressing room, not only did you have a car service, you had an, a person to accompany you, your husband, David yeah, Green. Yeah, he was there that night. Yeah. You and David have been married about 19 years or so? On the, on the way to it, April. It'll be 19 years. Yeah. Where, where did you meet? David's an actor also, he I is. should point we, out. We met on that bus and truck to hell uh, on the 20th century. He was playing uh, Oliver, one of uh, uh-huh. Oscar's henchmen, and uh, we just had so much in common um, to the point where um, my father and his sister-in-law's aunt, no, sister-in-law's mother, excuse me, had dated as kids. Go figure that one. (laughs) The Bayonne connection, we call it. (laughs) Jersey boy and girl. There you go. (laughs) Well, what do you and David do in your spare time? What kind of music do you listen to at home? We listen to a lot of classical music. We Uh listen to jazz. We listen to some country uh-huh. We listen to, uh, of course, always uh, the Great American Songbook, fascinated endlessly with it. Um, and we play a lot of golf. Any particular uh, singers who have been influential in, in your your own style, shall we say, yeah. role models perhaps? I think it, it's a mixed bag. Everybody from Robert Goulet to Marilyn Horn. Robert Goulet. <laughs> well, uh, someone gave me an album of his <laughs> singing <Frank> standards <laughs> when I was. Oh, well, Frank Sinatra. Forget about it. that's off the charts. But when I was a kid, someone gave me uh, an album of his singing just some great, great American songs, and I learned those renditions uh, of the songs. It was very funny that 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 album should be it. But he was singing awfully good. Well, people coming in from New Jersey may, in fact, see a Broadway star on that little $2 shuttle van, shuttle bus, coming into Port Authority Bus Terminal. And people all over the country can come to New York to the Lyceum Theater eight times a week, see Judy Kay, whose name is above the title, Souvenir, performing as Florence Foster Jenkins. Judy, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Judy. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten. For Downstage Center, that's a wrap, and thank you. <laughs>